0: every generation there is a chosen podcast it alone will analyze the subtext the allegory and the clever weediness dialogue it is
1: conversations with dead people
2: Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this will be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so. Uh, And joining me for today's conversation are David Bushman and Arthur Smith, um, TV curators at the Paley Center for Media in New York. And authors of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, FAQ, All That's Left to Know About Sunnydale's Slayer of Vampires, Demons, and Other Forces of Darkness. Guys, thank you so much for agreeing to join me. Uh, how are you doing?
0: Good. Thanks for having us. Very well. Thank you, Paul.
2: Uh, do you mind if I call you the lonely ones? <laughs> you won't be the first. <laughs> All right. Um Why don't we get just a a sort of brief history of you guys, of your history with Buffy? Like, how did you guys uh, first discover the show, and um, how did you become a package deal? Like, you guys, obviously, you do this whole Buffy thing together, so how did this partnership start?
0: Well, um, I um, first became aware of the show just by working here, and a lot of people... Yeah, I try to sample pretty much everything anyway. I've been working here since like 1992. So um, I try to sample everything. There, The show had a lot of buzz around my office here at the Pelly Center for Media in New York. Um, so, you know, when people are talking about things like that, I, people whose opinions I respect, uh, I get more into it. Then, I, Then I had a daughter who was born... In '92, and toward the end of its run, got into it. So then it became something that we kind of watched <clears throat> together. And since it's been off the air on Netflix for a while and now Hulu, we've, you know, totally immersed ourselves in it. And we've done, uh, we've gone to the trivia de trivia nights that they have. And, um, and and Arthur and I wrote this book. So that's my story, basically.
1: Uh, I think I came into Buffy uh, somewhere in the second or third season after um, a friend of mine from high school kept recommending it to me, and we had seen the movie together, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie when it initially came out, and I thought it was uh, kind of a funny idea but uh, wasn't fully on board uh, with the franchise, I guess, but she just kept insisting that no, no, it's not what you think it is, it's much better, it's much more interesting, so I Gave it a shot and quickly got hooked. Um, I think late season two or early season three, somewhere in there. So, like, when did you go back and watch season
0: one? Like, there's summer reruns or something back in the day when they had those. Yeah, I think
1: that is right. Yeah, I think I did that. And then I <clears throat> filled in probably some here actually here at work at the Bailey Center. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, I I quickly became a rabid fan of all things joss whedon and uh I, I was uh fully in nice
2: man that uh that feature film is as much a hurdle as it is an attraction for like like uh, buffy fans seem sort of evenly split between people who saw the film and were like and then heard that there was going to be a show and they were like oh that movie was that movie was fun maybe the show will be fun and then the other half of the of the crowd or people who saw the movie and are like oh they're gonna make a show out of that what an awful idea right so we, for our book
0: we had this really long we had this conversation we reached <laughs> out to the director friend kazooie uh-huh. and um you know she actually said well let me come in and talk to you she actually came into the office <laughs> sat, sat with us for like an hour talking about the movie and and then I said, at the end, she said, after it was all over, right? She said, we can't use any of it. Oh. <laughs> but, but anyway, I did do a lot of research into the movie and, and it is clear that, you know, that Josh is, that Joss is uh, sending out these warning signs. And if you look at the press release that, I think it was Fox or Fox or Warner Brothers, I forget who sent out for the movie, there's like one line. Uh, acknowledging Josh Whedon. It says it was written by Josh Whedon. He's he's such a non entity in the prom- in the promotion of it. And um but but if you look at the the articles that were coming out in um you know this kind of genre magazines, he was definitely raising red flags and then afterward they got it was kind of interesting because they they were saying these things about each other, Fran and Just that seemed kind of incendiary. And then uh you know they would keep saying, Oh no, our relationship is fine but <laughs> Clearly was huge tension there.
2: Huh. Yeah.
1: I think it's sort of best at its best um, in the Pee Wee Herman, the Paul Rubens oh, scenes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh I I do still enjoy that uh, element of the movie, but otherwise it's yeah, it's a little rough going.
2: Yeah, I saw it uh I saw it in theaters when it came out. I I'm pretty sure I've only seen it once. Like I've only like that's all I've seen. <laughs> and pretty much all I remember about it was is the Pee Wee Herman stuff, so
0: We talked to Christy Swanson for our book and she's hugely proud of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've heard people um, talk about how, you know, if you kind of if you just keep it in its proper context, that it's an enjoyable film. So I'm sure at some point I'm going to go back and revisit that film out of morbid curiosity of nothing else. But
1: yeah, I think it also might be worthwhile in that it's, you know, uh, maybe the first movie since Heathers to sort of. Uh, completely come up with a idiosyncratic teenage language yeah. sort of thing, Yeah. Uh, which I think is a pretty interesting development. But uh, of course, it's much uh, much more fully realized in the TV show with right. that, with that a- ensemble of actors.
2: Right. All right. Well, um, oh, this is going to be an interesting conversation. We've got uh, three. Pretty big episodes to talk about today. So uh, before we get to that, uh, it's time for the dreaded spoiler warning for our listeners. Uh, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them. So I recommend... If you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, you press pause on this podcast now and go do that. Uh, These conversations are going to make a lot more sense if you've actually seen the stuff that we're having conversations about. So, and I apologize, my cat wants to be a podcaster too, so you're going to hear her a few times during the episode. Uh, Anyways, with all of that uh, business taken care of, if you guys are ready, let's go to work. Okay. Okay so today we're going to be talking about uh episodes 206 halloween 207 lie to me and 208 the dark age and uh i'm gonna start off with you guys um, give me your impressions of these i mean you, you can talk about the individual episodes or these taken as a as a whole but what did you guys feel about these
1: you know i think i think this is <clears throat> sort of the point where i did um really get on board with Buffy. Uh, I remember so I guess it was in the second season uh, but I remember both of these very vividly the first the first two Halloween and lie to me um, the Halloween uh, conceit of the costumes changing everybody's personalities you know I'd, I'd watched enough to that point to get a sense of who the people were and to see this sort of audacious uh, wholesale changing of people's characters for this episode was really striking mm-hmm. fun. And then the next one uh, lighted me with with Ford and his sort of uh, pathetic, but, you know, uh, it's a very very dark, troubling psychology going on there in that story, and uh, that was very striking too, especially coming right after such a sort of, you know, formally uh, playful episode with such a different tone to it. So I think that the one-two punch of those two episodes is, uh, a very potent sort of uh, look at, at the uh, at the extremes the series could go to and and handle so deftly.
0: Yeah, and I think the uh, I think the Dark Age would be more in the darker oh for sphere sure sphere. Also, those those two episodes back to back are are pretty dark. I mean, Halloween is one of my favorite episodes, partly because I so love the character of Cordelia uh, <laughs> in seasons two and three, and you know it's a great. Great episode for her, and just the fact that, you know, I mean, she bought her costume at a different store, but there, there is no subtext to, to Cordelia, <laughs> you know. So you are gonna get Cordelia no matter no matter what. I'm, um, but uh, the thing that's interesting about it to me is one of the many things that's interesting about it to me. I mean, it's hilarious. It's an hilarious episode. Like <laughs> Spike marching down the street with his band of. D- demons of them with these little kids. But.
2: Oh, yeah. I love his reaction when he realizes what's going on. Well, wow, this is just <laughs> neat. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, uh, it was written by Carl
2: Ellsworth, who, you know, we talked, again, I,
0: I I actually don't hate to keep mentioning our book. I actually love to keep mentioning our book, but <laughs> the, um, he was brought on for the, he, we didn't talk to him, but we talked to some staff writers who were, were pretty honest about the situation, and it was almost like Either you were in the gold, you're like a golden child in the inner circle, or you had a miserable experience. And Ellsworth was brought on for the second season. He has one credited episode, and then was let go, according to what we found out. And I have a pretty strong feeling that he didn't even write much of this this episode. And um, we did talk to one writer uh, who also wrote one of my favorite episodes. And I think again, it's like he only has one or two credits. And when we asked him, and he's gone on to be very successful, as has uh, elsewhere, he's wrote like Red Eye for for Western, right. and but um, this writer said, "I'll talk to you about anything I've ever done except for Buffy. I'll never talk to you on the record about Buffy." So wow. I think that even though there was pro- this was probably a difficult episode to shepherd um, because the writer clearly didn't work out. Uh, for the show and left the show, but um, even though or maybe because of that, I don't know. But I think it was um, it couldn't have been an easy episode to to um, bring to fruition, and yet I think it's one of the best. It's kind
2: of like Stahl's one episode of Twin Peaks. Uh,
0: Nick, Nick, Jerry Jerry Stahl. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. I knew I was going to comment on the fact that um, that this is a great episode and this. Uh, this writer only has this one credit. I didn't know the backstory. I didn't realize that it was as troubled as it was. You you implied that you're not sure even how much of the finished product is actually uh, attributable to Carl Ellsworth. Do you know if there were other writers that are just uncredited on this?
0: Well, I think that uh, everything had to sort of pass muster with the... Um, with. I probably in the second season with Joss, um, and I, you know, um, my I'm I i do not have any uh, verifiable information, but it follows the pattern of this other episode I was talking about where it turned out to be great. It's got it, it you know has a signature blend of humor and this whole genre uh, stew to it, and um, the writer was was, according to my sources, let go, mm-hmm. uh, Short, you know, shortly after being brought on. He doesn't have any other credits. So, you know, I hope I'm not doing Carl any disservice, but it's, that's kind of where that leads me to conclude that there was some heavy rewriting going on. I mean, it, you know, the next episode we're going to talk about was written and directed by Jocelyn. He was very clearly involved this early in the show, but it, it does seem... Very much like a Just Weidman episode to me. I don't know.
1: Yeah, well, it's, and uh, this sort of premise, the uh, the personality switching uh, idea, would would be used several times to to good effect as the series continued in episodes like Band Candy. Yeah. One uh, where where Spike and Buffy think they're what are their names? Joan and
2: Yeah. Um, that's such a funny and one. I, and something, always, something we'll, blue, I think. Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. So, whoever came up with this. I can see for this episode. I think it was a, a fruitful uh, idea for the series as it went on. It, it was always entertaining when they would play with this.
2: Well, I'm not going to ask you. Um, I, I get the sense you're being vague intentionally. I won't ask who the other, what the other episode is, in case you don't want to out the other writer. But I will say that um, the there's at least one example of, and and I don't know any of the behind the scenes. I don't know what the relationship this writer had with the the production, the regular production company. Was but uh, in Angel, which I'm actually a, a bigger fan of Angel the series than I am of Buffy. But uh, in the Angel episode five by five, uh, season oh. one episode eighteen, that was written by Jim Koof or Koff, I'm not sure how to say his name. That is one of my all-time favorite episodes, like of of any of the series. Um, I adore that episode, and like that writer went on to have a, a pretty big career in Hollywood. But uh, it just it strikes me that some of the standout episodes apparently have sort of one-off writers attached to them.
1: That's interesting. I wonder if they were seen as threatening, or they were too uh, intractable in their own idea, with their own ideas, or something. Or well, you know, we did
0: one writer who did go on the record with us about this kind of problem was Dean Batali, who wrote he was there on the first season and then. I think the second season as well, and then there is, he had a writing partner, uh, Rob Dis Hotel, I think his name was, and mm-hmm. they, their contracts were not renewed for the third season. And he basically said, you know, that if you didn't, if, again, to reiterate what I said earlier, if if you're not a part of the sort of golden circle, which people like Marty Knox and, and David Fury and so on were, that you were, it was going to be a, a tough experience for you. So. And you know, I think you know you had to adapt to a very um, idiosyncratic style. I yeah. think,
2: and yeah.
0: you know, I, I don't know that how easy that is. It can't be that easy, or more people would, would do it. I think. But um, can I can I turn the microphone around and ask you a couple of questions about Angel? Because Arthur and I both also love Angel. But um, one problem I had with Angel was again being a Cordelia fan. I. I i just think what they wound up doing to her
2: yes no i completely agree
0: okay and and i mean uh that season that particular season where that happens and uh i, I think she basically like gives you talk about Pylea and all that stuff? no not Pylea, but
2: uh
0: jasmine right. that's that just yeah season
2: four yeah um now i i'm kind of a I won't say closet because I don't hide it, but I am a fan of season four. I recognize that it uh, is possibly the weakest of the seasons for Angel, but uh, and it definitely had its issues, but I feel like a lot of the stuff that people did not like about season four, I actually kind of did. However, the treatment that Charisma Carpenter like, – I'm going to say Charisma Carpenter, not just Cordelia, because I've, I feel like – I have a vague sense uh, based on what was going around – at the time that there was behind the scenes drama going on that for whatever reason, Charisma Carpenter either wasn't happy or they weren't happy with her. I don't know the details. I'll dive more into that, I guess, when we actually get to Angel. But um, the character of Cordelia um, uh, for, for the first few seasons was um, served very well by Angel yep. the series. Yep. uh but yeah, by the end uh it it wasn't <laughs> I'm not a fan of the way that they treated the character or the actress by the end of that series.
0: Well, the rumor about that is that they were unhappy that she got pregnant without you
2: know well, that would of, be ironic since they got the character of Cordelia pregnant like four times on the show
0: right well, I think the the, the last time i mean people really were turned off by the relationship, the whole Connor. Cordelia thing, but, um, uh, you know, it, it, the, we've, we wrote our book before the stuff came out with Joss, uh-huh.
2: and,
0: uh, his, his wife. But right. one thing I noticed in this episode of Halloween is there's two scenes that appear like very close to attempted rape, uh, one with Larry and one with Spike.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, well on a, on a previous episode of the podcast, I talked about, uh, the pack the episode the pack uh where a he was possessed by a hyena spirit but xander who is a character that i have some issues with uh actually attempted to rape buffy and they make a joke out of it in the episode they actually call it out buffy refers to him uh, attempting first degree sexual assault and by the end of that episode they kind of play it off as a joke and it as far as I know, that goes unremarked upon for the rest of the series run, despite the fact that other characters who attempt similar things are not granted the sort of pass that Xander got for that.
1: Well, there, and there's another thing where um, you remember when uh, Buffy and Willow are his early days in college and, and Spike uh, escapes the initiative and he attacks Willow. Right. But because of the chip, he's unable to um, function. Function, and the whole the whole thing turns into a very clear sexual metaphor. Yeah, where the attack is is reframed as a sexual attack, and she's kind of consoling him, and he's saying like, "This has never happened to me before," and it's it's you know funny on that level, but it does leave you with kind of an odd feeling that this this sort of uh, clear, clearly clearly uh, indicated rape-like scenario is was just laughed off
2: yeah as a bit um i've kind of avoided i don't want to i don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this because we i want us to talk about these episodes but i have you you mentioned you guys had written your book before all this stuff came out with joss and kai and um i've kind of avoided talking about that on the show so far just because i don't want that to be become the dominant narrative of this podcast is how we feel about joss like today (laughs) but um there is a, there is an undercurrent. There is kind of a subtext running through this rewatch for me now. Um, I, I mentioned that I have certain difficulties with the character of Xander. I always, I feel like I always have. It, it's worse on this rewatch for me. But um, there's a very tiny bit of discomfort that comes along with the, like, the, <laughs> the news that has come out now about Jaws. The fact that Xander is very overtly meant to be kind of the Joss Whedon avatar of the series. And there are certain behaviors and attitudes that Xander displays that I guess some people would now be uncomfortable if, like, they remembered that Xander is kind of meant to be the Joss Whedon of the show. Right. Yeah, cause I love
1: Xander. He's, he's one of my favorite characters. He's so funny. Uh, but yeah, he's he's not very nice to Anya. He, he treats right. her horribly, um, right. yeah. especially as things progress. And he does have a, you know, troubling whiff of the, you know, nerd rage, men's rights, uh, <laughs> you know, nice guy in quotation mark, friend zone,
2: yeah,
1: uh, resentment guy, yeah. Uh, which is, you know, in this in this year, uh, increasingly uh, a bad look.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's impossible to go back and watch this show again without seeing it through, uh, you know, a a modern day lens, I suppose. But um, I do try to give the show a little bit. I I try to give the show the leeway of its time, I guess. But
1: and it is Buffy's story and it is, you know, I I I wouldn't take away its sort of feminist credentials. Yeah. But but there are those elements that are, you know, kind of in sharper relief maybe now that we know more things and uh yeah there's a little bit of disappointment uh, um
2: just to to continue treading water here for a couple more minutes um i'm interested in what you guys were talking about the when you're talking when you were talking about the difficulty that sort of one-off writers were having getting into the ensemble the writer's room or whatever um, and I, you described it as there was there was sort of the core group, or there was there were the golden children, or whatever, of the writers' room, and you had a, outside writers had a difficult time meshing with that group, right? Am I is that correct?
0: I think that is correct.
2: Yes. Okay, that's interesting to me because one of the issues that I have with this series, I've had with this series for years, and part of doing this podcast is me re-exploring and seeing if maybe I've changed and I'll view it differently, or if I'm going to have the same issues. But one of the issues I have with the series over its run is that the, in these early seasons, um, the Scooby gang, which I can officially call them that now because they, they, uh, Oh, no, I, I think I mean, maybe I'm an episode or two away from that. Anyways, who will eventually become the Scooby gang, our heroes start off the series as the outsiders. They're the nerds and the, the ones that are are bullied or picked on or whatever. They're the ones that are, you know, excluded from the reindeer games of the rest of the cool kids. Mm-hmm. And as the series progresses, they develop their own core group of cool kids. They become the cool kids and they increasingly exclude other people on the outside like specifically people like jonathan and and the characters that go on to become like the nerd troika and um they some of that is understandable and some of it is like characters are allowed to be flawed they should be flawed to tell interesting stories and so on and so forth but i struggle with it a little bit as the series heads into later seasons the fact that you know xander used to be um used to hate the fact that he got bullied by people like Larry or whatever. Uh and and part of his core identity was that he got cut out from, you know, participating with the cool kids in school. And he grows up basically to be one of the cool kids who excludes others and keeps people on the outside.
1: Right. Well I mean I think, you know, again, you can kind of look forward to uh things like Gamergate, you know, where this uh-huh. sort of um we're the outsiders but that's because we're smarter and more special right. uh, than all those normal people, and it, it kind of curdles into this this ugly bitter sort of, um, you know, soul sickness. I think, and uh, I think is maybe there's some self-awareness around that, and that's what the uh, the troika, you know, was was there to sort of say, look, you guys, you're, you know, you're you're also uh, Uh, allowing this to flourish, this sort of resentment. And, Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I I don't know if that was some self-awareness there, uh, with Warren and Jonathan. Um, but, but it's, it's impossible not to see echoes of all the stuff that's going on now. Um, yeah. In this show, which I think is, you know, to the show's credit, actually, that these things are even present to be noticed and, and questioned.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. um, all right, so let's uh, let's discuss details, I guess, about these episodes. Um, the uh, I want to ask you guys about the series habit of introducing, like the show in general, and this episode, uh, Halloween, in particular. Actually, maybe all three of these, I'd have to look at my notes, but at least Halloween in particular, uh, loves to throw out like specific detailed facts, like pieces of information that Giles calls from his books or that Jenny pulls off the, or Willow pull off the computer or whatever. And it specifically, uh, deals with like dates and, uh, incidences and stuff like in in Halloween Willow claims that in 1775 Angel would have been 18 years old and still human that's absolutely not true that is (laughs) that is uh I think it had already been contradicted by information on the show I can't remember but I know for a fact that that information is wildly different later on in the series it just seems like a thing that the show does a lot where they it's it seems odd to me that the show was so uh consistent about Having a character reveal a specific date, like they the the Watchers' journals apparently thought that Spike was two hundred years old, and we find out he's not. And do you? I mean, yeah, I
1: what you're saying
2: I. You know, I I kind of feel like a
1: lot of the supernatural, the laws of the magic, or sort of the the way the supernatural things function in the series can be pretty inconsistent and fuzzily defined. Right. And it is kind of a funny contrast that when they're talking about these things, they are so specific. And, you know, they have, they can cite the year and the location and the person and all this stuff. But my sense is that 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 information is more there for for color and atmosphere. Right. Um, This sort of like uh, Sherlock Holmes, you know, the scene where they're putting everything together. But I don't think the, um, I don't think the show is really too concerned about being rigorous uh with 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 making all that consistent i you know I, I think that specificity is in there to give Giles and Willow some character um, beats to be like oh these go- these these two are really on top of their stuff, they know you know they know the specifics, but the show itself i don 't think pays too much attention to them
2: so is it just us uh, i i, I won 't include you in this in case uh, I offend you, but nerds like me uh is it just us being like annoyingly nerdy when we latch on to details when the show gives us details like that and then it contradicts those details a few episodes later or should we just should we just let that shit go <laughs> we
1: should but i do find it frustrating as well like just the nature of vampires on the show are like we're told explicitly over and over again that that's not the person right the demon has possessed their dead body and they have some memories maybe, but it's not the same person, but clearly Spike is, is William. Right. And, um, that just seems to be true or not true as, is, is convenient for the storyline. And, uh, it, it's frustrating because you do in, especially in such a fantastical story, you do want to be, you feel like you're grounded in some, in some basic rules that let you know where you stand in any given, uh, situation. But, um, and Drusilla
0: is clearly the Drusilla yeah. whom angel drove, drove crazy. But, you know, I, I think that um, I think there's a few interesting things here. I, certainly, uh, I'm totally in the same boat as you in terms of uh, obsessing over these details. I think that I wonder if, if it's possible today to get away with that sort of uh, cavalierness with respect to um, details now that the Internet is even you know way more of a factor than it was I don't know if Josh Whedon and Marty Knoxon and David Greenwald expected there to be you know like thousands of academic articles and books on yeah but today if you make a TV show that's rich in mythology I think you might you might expect that to happen and you have to be more careful I mean Arthur and I also wrote about Twin Peaks and you know, that's another one. Now we're talking 1990, 91, the original one. That's another one where all sorts of inconsistencies pop up. And then when Mark Frost wrote the novels in 2016 and 17, he had inconsistencies in there. And his answer was, um, there's more than one canon. Uh, so, <laughs>
2: See, for Twin
0: Peaks, that almost works. Well, it sort of does in a way, because you had two creators with I think differing visions but
1: but for for Buffy it doesn't. Yeah. And the inconsistency is kind of baked into Twin Peaks. Right. Um, it's sort of supposed to confound your uh, your your sense of logic and and uh, and understanding I think. But in Buffy it's just when it does crop up it is just sort of an irritant. You're like, "Well, but you said
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was really hard like to figure out how how old Angel was. I had to write the angel stuff about the character in the show. And it was really hard to come up with a definitive answer. And, you know, that I have to admit that that does bug me,
1: you know. Yeah. Or people kind of people forget this amazing skill they had in a previous situation. That would be very helpful. Like was, in Star Wars, I always wonder, like, two scenes ago, you left 30 feet in the air. Why don't you do that? now?
2: Well, water. that's that's just like Buffy in the first episode. Yeah. She she jumps like 20 feet over a fence and never does exactly. that again.
1: Yeah, and that that'd probably come in handy yeah. um, now and again. But yeah. I I don't know. You know, that's I think that's always kind of a tension in genre stuff like how strict are you gonna be um about these rules and I think in Joss Whedon's case, story, theme, emotion is always gonna trump that stuff. I don't even think it's a a contest. It's like, well we'll just we'll just be wrong then and, and yeah. you know, it's it us to this story beat that's more important.
2: Well, personally, uh, for myself, I would say that the inconsistencies between dates and ages and stuff like that for characters, I I let that stuff go a lot more than I do the inconsistencies about like, what is a vampire? And what what is a soul in Buffyverse? Since that stuff seems for for uh, for storytelling purposes and emotional purposes, that feels much more important to me across the series. And it is so like, inconsistent and they... Well,
1: I don't know if this makes any sense, but one way I started to think about it was sort of like uh, some people take religion uh, as to be all metaphor and parable that get at actual truths. Uh-huh. So I think maybe you could look at it like, oh, a vampire isn't the person anymore. It's a demon that's taken their body. That's maybe not a literal thing. Right. Maybe it means that, that this change has so altered the person, is so... Uh, relieve them of any inhibitions or or Conscious, moral yeah or moral structure or consciousness that it might as well be a yeah. demon you know maybe if you can look at a lot of the uh, of the ideas in that way where the, the these things that these old grimoires they're reading say things like this maybe those are books are using sort of more metaphorical language i don't know
2: no i like that i like that I don't know if I'll be able to cling to that for every episode going forward, but <laughs> I will certainly try. Um, we do, we can. <laughs> right. So let's talk about Robin Sachs, uh, uh, Ethan Rain, who we finally, um, I had actually forgotten it took this long for the se- in the series for him to pop up. I thought he was earlier than this, but um, we finally get Ethan and I want to, well, I wanna get your guys' opinions on Ethan, a character that we're gonna see, I think a couple more times. I don't think this is all we get of Ethan, right? No, he's he's in the Dark Age, and he's also in Band Candy. And
1: okay, he, okay. And he comes back when they're in college, and turns Giles into a demon. They have a wild yeah, one them, yeah, right? yeah.
2: He's actually he's big big uh, player in the comics too. Oh man, the comics. Okay. Um, uh, well, I just I want to before I get your takes on on Ethan Rain, I just want to praise Robin Sachs uh, for being one of the very. Few actors capable of making, like a made-for-TV evil Latin incantation, actually sound <laughs> convincing. There's there are countless examples, not only on this show but across television, of people reading like Latin spells or whatever, and almost without exception, they just sound goofy. But it's true. Yeah. in Halloween, that he genuinely sounded like he knew what he was doing. Like I expected, some stuff to actually happen.
1: You know, those those British actors have that training. They can, that's it. they can pull off that theatrical nonsense, I think, better than most American actors.
2: I guess that's it. So, Ethan, what do you guys think? What do you think about Ethan?
0: Ethan is hilarious. I mean, uh, you know, even you know subtle things like when uh, a demon breaks into the room and he takes Buffy and puts her in front of him and, uh, <laughs> you know... What nobody comments on that. He's just, you know, he's a very he's. We talk about all these inconsistencies. I think he's a very consistent character in that he is uh, basically craven and, um, you know, very self uh, possessed. And um, but he's fun.
1: Oh, absolutely. Whenever he shows up, something fun happens. He's
0: he's and fun and funny. Yeah. Funny, and um, you know, I mean, I love the fact that. He's this link to Giles' past and a different time in his life where he was a different character whom, you know, they're all, all the Scoobies are so convinced that they know who Giles is. And, and you know, he, Ethan is like this, this link to um, a much darker time in his life and sort of proof that he was
1: more dimensional than,
0: than they had thought.
1: But mostly I, I just like him because he's funny. I would really like I know that there was talk at, at some point of a, a Giles series yeah. as a sort of Buffy prequel uh project and I would love to see young Giles and young Ethan uh their their misadventures as you know punk rock magicians in, in the 70s in England. I think it'd be a lot like Constantine but I think it would be great.
2: That that would be amazing. I know in the comics which are a whole other a whole other thing but i know in the comics uh giles has been de-aged back to yep childhood but anyways um after after he's killed right bring him back yeah i basically in magneto (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) yeah exactly um yeah i haven't read a bunch of the comics i read uh season eight of buffy and was not a huge fan and basically quit that and i read the uh angel and faith series which is where um i believe at one point the storyline of that was giles had been killed and angel was on a quest to bring him back i believe that's That's right right. yeah yeah
0: because angel killed him right
2: yeah um uh
0: they've said themselves that that season eight was somewhat of a mistake and that they suddenly had all this room to play with they could do flying cars and and that they they got away from the core of what the show was about which is relationships Mm -hmm. and um and so they themselves say that you know they were so seduced by this freedom that they that they sort of lost sight of of what the show is there's still some good stuff in it though i mean season eight you know the big deal is uh buffy's sexual orientation and Mm -hmm. her and the fact that as long as we're talking about spoilers that angel turned out to be this evil, the, the big bad, really.
2: Yeah, that that man. <laughs> I, su- I super struggle with that. When that happened, yeah. I threw my hands up and I was like, "I'm I'm tuning out. I'm done." <laughs> but uh, I have been told you're not the first. You're not the first guest to have implied that uh, beyond season eight that the comics have at least improved. Uh,
0: you know, I I don't love the comics, and when I stopped writing the book, I stopped reading them at least temporarily. One thing that I that I don't love about the comics, and I saw it in, a little bit in Halloween, and it was not something that I was conscious of at all in any of my previous uh, watches or rewatches is that you know, Buffy can be very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very self, uh, How Arthur is a, is a wordsmith here, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure what you're going she's, for. She's just very self sort of pitying uh, yeah. at times, very self-indulgent. And um, I, I like her so much better when she's not like that. I mean, this is not a brilliant thing that I'm saying because everybody hated Dark Buffy uh, in season five, right? Or season five with the Double Meet Palace and um, after the mom dies and um, so. But you know, like I like her so much better when she's just uh, funny or perky or um, just when she's not going on and on about. I, I know. So, I mean, Halloween is largely about, from Buffy's perspective, how she wants this, so much is how she wants this normal life as a girl. Um, but, you know, I think that it sometimes gets overdone and it's a turnoff for me that, that, and, and, you know, like, I think, you know, she, um, you know, I think so much of her relationship with Willow is really, there's even an episode where she apologizes to Willow because she had not been attuned to what Willow was going through. I can't remember. I think you know, that
2: might have been in season four.
0: Well, there's also season two when she comes back from M L A
1: and she's very alienated from everyone. Well, she takes uh, the news of Willow and Tara's relationship yeah. very badly. Yeah. She's very yeah. kind of judgmental and uh, cold about it. But I think, you know, I think with Whedon, though, one thing I admire about him is I think that is irritating in the short term. But I think the payoff is over the course of the series, there's an arc to her development that really pays off where it all makes sense. When you get to the final season and she's this seasoned, uh, you know, compelling, charismatic leader that you absolutely believe has this strength and resolve. I think it's it's earned by following her through those early um, self self pitying days, which would be completely normal for someone in her position to feel through her dark despair and kind of existential "I like, give up" and her death and rebirth. I think it all is it pays off uh, for the Buffy we get in the end, like the truly fully realized hero. And I think it's kind of a in, incredible. Uh, discipline that that Whedon showed by not always having her be what we what we might want her to be. I, lar-
2: Until- I I largely agree with you on that. I think it's uh, it absolutely is a strength of this show and of Joss's work in general that uh, he allows his characters to be flawed and damaged and to to not always be the perfect heroes. Um, and you know it is a journey from the first episode to the last. I I talked earlier about struggling with Xander. Uh, buffy Summers is the character I struggle with the most hands down over the course of the series uh It'll be this podcast is going to be just a hoot when we get to the last couple seasons of buffy <laughs> um i uh, my guests are going to really have to have some patience with me, but um I would say that uh they um david let me let me make sure I'm getting the voices correct David. I think you were the one talking about the Uh, sort of self-indulgence or whatever of Buffy, correct? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, I I feel like she definitely grows over the course of the the series, um, and there is a payoff at the end. However, um, much more on this when we actually reach that point of the series to discuss on the podcast, but I believe there is an intense... There's a very specific and very, very intense, and for me impossible to ignore, hypocrisy to a certain a certain aspect of the way that the series ends and Buffy, the character in particular, um, how, how she rounds out the series. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I've said that spoilers are okay, but I'm trying to be vague. I don't, I don't know if I want to start that conversation right now, but
1: I think we should cut her some slack. Cause after all, she's, she's a poor deluded girl, in a mental institution. Just <laughs> well, that's, me this,
2: so that's true. That's true. I this is, this is good. actually all just a story being told by, uh, by, um, is it, oh, shit, is it Jonathan? Is he the one in Storyteller? Well, I think, yeah, Arthur was referring to normal again. Yeah, That's, I know, I know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But, you know, uh, speaking of evolutions, uh, um, you know, Buffy does uh, go through that evolution, and she goes, she hits the, you know, the, the whole season with Spike. She hits, like, the deaths of Despair. So there's a great arc. There's no question about that. Uh, but the couple of other uh, characters here... Mm-hmm. Uh, who I think again in in Halloween you sort of see them in a way that most appealing to me. I really like the tentative, timid Willow much better than the sort of I don't know what this says about me. The empowered witch <laughs> comes later on in the series. I just really. Let's not get on a Me Too. <laughs> <laughs> <What if summer? laughs> and also C- Cordy, you know I just love her as this um I mean even in the first few seasons of Angels before she has a relationship with Connor uh you know she's she's growing and and I miss as she should I mean you know uh, she goes through some tough things and but uh you know I miss that sort of so. Sol- Solistic. Sol- Solipsistic. Sol- 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 I can't say the <laughs> word. <laughs> bitch, you know, that she was. And I just think she she was... Uh, I think they're in fine form in Halloween, both Cordia and Willow. I mean, Will, Willow's line, like, um, she couldn't have dressed like Xena, that's, like, one of the great lines. Yeah. That.
1: Yeah, that is great. Well, there is kind of... In any series that goes on long enough that has vivid characters, I, I call it mashification, where... Winchester will come on and mash and be this hilarious, officious snob, and by the last episode, he's soulfully teaching the natives how to play a symphony, <laughs> or music. Like because you know, the character, you know, those actors, I guess, and the writers are like, "Well, let's let's really, let- there's another side to this guy." Let's- Good Spike. Yeah, I, I mean <laughs> that that paid off. But but a lot of times, you know, the uh, e- either the the character traits get amplified to the degree where Homer Simpson becomes so stupid he. Can't understand how he gets dressed, or they kind of <laughs> like, well, they're a sweetheart down deep, and yeah, just gotta, you know, so I think that that kind of happens, um, unfortunately.
2: Well, just to mention, and we can uh sort of transition past Halloween by talking about this, I guess. Uh, we already talked about Ethan and his past with Giles and how we're, we get a Halloween begins our discovery of sort of the the uh, deeper shades of Giles than anything we've gotten before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I want to posit that perhaps Giles gets the, not the most, uh, by most I mean not, not the farthest reaching or most shocking character development over the course of the series, but maybe the most sort of... Uh, comfortably satisfying. I don't. I don't know where I'm going with this. I feel like the Giles that we've known up to this point, giving him uh, this sort of dark uh, moment in his past, uh, and then certain other sort of darknesses that are added to him as the series goes on. By the end, I feel like Giles is very, very satisfying. He's had a very satisfying character arc for me.
1: I agree, and I. I think uh, if Xander is is Joss Whedon's sort of avatar in the series, and I think Giles is his, who he wishes he could be. I think uh-huh. that's where he projects his, his uh, ambitions and his, you know, his sort of idealized image of himself. Uh, so I think it it is kind of interesting to see Giles get cooler and cooler and see all these things sort of pay off for him as uh-huh. things go along. Yeah,
0: yeah, you get huge insight into Giles and in Restless, the dream yeah. episode where you sort of see how he I think in many ways struggles with his identity as a watcher and the things that he's had to sacrifice uh, in order to um, be that uh, the uh, musical career uh, wife and child um, so yeah I mean there's great there's great depth to him and um, he's um, you know he's he's I agree I, w- I would say that that's a good point that Arthur makes about uh, him being as I'm sure they're all aspects of,
1: of Joss but yeah yeah like the tweety genius who's secretly also a ladies man rock and roller yeah, <laughs> genius yeah. guy. Yeah. little that's a little fishy I mean I love the character he's actually my favorite character in the series but he is kind of a wish fulfillment so sure. interesting Paul now that you know Arthur's favorite and my
2: favorite character, who's your favorite character in the series <laughs> at this point or or just as a whole
0: Oh, as a whole, I would say.
2: Uh, well, it, it it's this might be a little unfair because a lot of this comes in Angel, the series, but uh, it's it's a tie probably between Faith and Wesley.
1: Uh, I was gonna say Wesley is, is a contender for me. Well, yeah, yeah Wesley's but Wesley's all Angel, really. Oh, well, he's funny in Buffy, but he's, yeah, but
0: he's like in like what? How many episodes? Just a few.
2: Yeah, and yeah. he's just so one-dimensional, but he is
0: hilarious. Mm-hmm. I mean, that actor is great.
2: Uh, of the main, like of the main core Scooby gang, um, I, it's it's got to be Willow. Like uh, of the primary characters, Willow is absolutely my favorite. I feel like on first airing, initially Xander was probably my guy, but gradually, like. I fell out of love with him and I'm struggling with him even more now. But Willow is pretty consistently my favorite of the the main group.
1: That's interesting because I love her too, but it could be argued that she kind of made the worst transgressions in terms of violating Tara's mind. And
2: Yeah. But for some reason, the, <clears throat> like the fact that these characters do terrible things isn't necessarily what I hold against them. It's the way that the character gets to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so the early seasons Willow is absolutely adorable and precious to me and her you, we could consider it a form of sort of character assassination what's done to her in later seasons and the things that they have her become but um, that doesn't like ruin the character for me the way other you know developments that some of the other characters go through uh, threatened to at least so
1: I think maybe a lot of that's down to Allison Hannigan's. it might of. be She's so emotionally transparent like she's just it's impossible not to empathize with what she's going through when you're watching
2: yeah yeah uh so lie to me moving into the zeroing in on the second episode here um i love (laughs) i love it anytime that episode title sort of just directly speaks to what the heck you're watching and um not only is this one of those episodes where a character gets to say the name of the episode, which is always fun, but mm-hmm. it's also, like, lie to me. This this episode is all about, like, practically every single character in this is either keeping secrets from or telling straight-up lies to, like, all of the other characters. And, in fact, you could almost make a case that the episode itself is... I'll use air quotes, dishonest uh, it, because it, the, it openly mocks the idea of sort of the Anne Rice subculture of vampire fans mm-hmm. while also completely leaning into the Gothic romantic aspect of vampires. Mm-hmm. Like it makes fun of it at the same time. Uh, Angel is the, the leading man sex symbol of the series and Spike and Drew are so clearly the Gothic romantic uh, vampire trope, right? Yeah, there's definitely having your cake and eating it too there. Yeah. But, uh, anyways, what'd you what'd you guys think about "Lie to Me"?
0: Well, a few things. First of all, the 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 scene at the beginning is really scary with Priscilla and and the boy. Yeah. Um, but that is another case of Buffy like. She sees Angel with Drusilla, and she goes into another one of her self-pitying. Uh, just like in Halloween, I think because in Halloween it's the one where she might have been lied to me also, We're supposed to meet him at the bar, and he's with Cord- Cordelia. And same thing. I mean, she, she sees him with another woman, and it's like they're, just, you know, automatically she's feeling sorry for herself. Um, what one thing I, I like about this episode, I think you made a really good point about the sort of theme running through it, not just in with Ford's um, presentation of who he is, but you know, uh, Willow's keeping secrets from Buffy, uh, and so on, And um, but I, I really like the Angel-Willow interaction in this mm-hmm. episode, which is not very, you don't normally get a lot of that. So I really like sort of seeing, like that scene where he comes to her house, and she's, you know, all nervous, and she's mm-hmm. wearing her little fuzzy <laughs> slippers, and... Uh, that's you know i i that's one thing i really enjoyed about
2: this episode that you know i i can't remember i've said before on the show that my my detail memories of the series going forward are a little vague like I, so i i don't remember if it specifically pans out in terms of uh angel being able to enter willow's house but knowing where some of that stuff is going in episodes coming up in this season and beyond um, it was a little bit chilling for me to see, her, like vulnerable, especially vulnerable. She's always, you know, adorable and and just precious Willow, but the fact that she was wearing little fluffy slippers in her in her nightshirt, um, that she just casually invites Angel into her house. Um, I mean, I did like that scene, but yeah it's it's the tiniest bit chilling knowing the arc that the character is going to go through
0: it's a great point you do wonder how much how much foreshadowing they're doing because again when you look at the arrival of dawn yeah there's this whole theory that they were foreshadowing it for quite a while and um with even with just comments that that people made so you're right. The first time you saw that um, episode, you would have thought very little of her inviting him in, as she does. She yeah. has no hesitation about it at all, and it's not going to be many more episodes before that whole situation becomes a lot more fraught. Um, what did you think of lot of me?
1: Um, I thought, it, I, you know, I really like this one. I, I, I found it what Ford was really up to, to be really chilling for some reason, um, just the, the depth of self-delusion that he had sunk to, uh, and, you know, again, I think it's sort of playing into this, um, this, this feeling that's unfortunately so prevalent today, this, this simmering, you know, uh, cauldron of, of, of rage and, and resentment and frustration that's going on in, in high school age kids who are bullied and are just not able to participate socially or whatever, and how there is real horror and danger um, locked up in that and threat, you know, and, and is a consequence of, of that. And, um, you know, this Buffy is, is unparalleled in using metaphors to, you know, horror genre metaphors to get at truths of adolescent. Feelings, And I think this is a a really striking example of that.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, There's the scene when um, uh, it's at the, I can't even remember if it's ever named in the episode, but it's called the sunset club, I guess, where all of the wannabe vampires hang out. And uh, the scene towards the end when Buffy uh, locks all of the vampires in and uh, Ford is the only human that's left inside. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's no way that this would. I mean, this couldn't possibly have been intentional at the time that this episode aired. But I just wonder if, when it came to Angel season two episode ten reunion, um, I wonder if anybody, as they were writing that scene that happens in Angel, um, was thinking back to this. There's, there's just a, a sort of inversion of what happens in Angel, two ten
0: episode where they lock in the lawyers.
2: Yeah, where he where so in this one. Buffy uh, and it's not necessarily intended to trap um, Ford in there with the vampires but that is in essence what happens there's a bunch of vampires and one human that get locked together and then in Angel you know Angel locks a couple of vampires in with a whole bunch of lawyers
0: yeah you know I I don't know I I think that's an interesting point I, I, I don't think Buffy had that darkness in her right right Um. So I don't know, but it is, it is an interesting analogy. Um, one thing I really like about this episode, too, is that she, she talks about Ford like in seventh grade. It's uh, To me, it's all about how you start off in life with this sort of innocence. Like it is like the, the life that you know when you're really young is basically a lie. Mm-hmm. You think that things you know, are much different from much simpler. And yeah, I mean, we believe in monsters and things like that, but, but you, you know, you, you have a certain degree, degree of innocence that I think basically what she's saying at the end, it just, life keeps getting harder. And he tells, and Giles tells her, you know, that's, I wish I could tell you that that wasn't true, but it gets more complicated as you go on. and, And I thought that that was kind of an interesting place to start again in the playground with the empty swings and the, merry merry go or whatever they call that thing right. that spins around and sort of start off with that innocence in that childhood because I think that's sort of in addition just being a scary scene and serving the function of Buffy's arousing Buffy's jealousy because of Drusilla I think it also ties into this whole theme starting off at this innocent place and you're going to the cemetery at the end so there's a certain journey right uh, in the structure of it that I thought was really pretty cool. And
1: I also like that the the attitude of the story towards lying is is more nuanced than just we lie. To, it's it's bad that we lie to each other because yeah. that creates distance between us. And the, the the end affirms that some lies are necessary um, to keep us going. That that we have to lie to ourselves in some pretty uh, significant ways just to continue the fight.
2: I mean, the the final scene uh, is one of the truly great, iconic sort of Giles and Buffy moments mm-hmm. um, that that pretty much every Buffy fan knows the whole, um, and of course I can't quote it, uh, when I'm called upon, I can't quote it now, but the whole, you know, uh, good
1: guys always win. Evil is always punished.
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Everyone lives happily ever after. I mean, that is just, uh, one of those mile markers in the series that, that fans remember. Um, and you're right. It, it, does demonstrate the fact that, uh, like you said, lies aren't necessarily a bad thing.
1: And it's Uh, even sort of a meta-commentary on the entire series because we are watching a a genre, fairy tale monster story, which mm -hmm. is supposed to work out that way. It's supposed to be that the good guy wins in the end and everybody lives happily ever after, but it's
2: not over. I mean, one of the reasons it's great is that uh, as... I mean, you can make an argument that the show does this a lot, but that clearly is a moment where the, the show is also speaking to the audience. <laughs> like, like, it's not just Giles, mm-hmm. you know, telling comfortable lies to Buffy to make her feel better. It's, it's metatextually, the writers are also speaking to the audience and, and letting you know that, oh, yeah, good guys always win, the bad guys always wear the black hat, everyone lives happily ever after, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's the show's way of saying, just, just get ready (laughs) because we're telling you that's not true right now. Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, whatever you
1: want to say about Joss Whedon in light of stories that have come out, I think it's that respect for adolescents' intelligence and ability to sort of grasp, um, more than we think they can, these, these difficult truths about life that, um. I, I think you know is one of the is one of the greatest legacies of the show mm-hmm. This sort of deep respect I think for uh, the truth that you know young people are able to sort of handle these things that we maybe don't think they're they're ready for or we underestimate their ability to understand yeah that's a great point I um, uh, also like about
0: this uh, episode again being an angel fan like you Paul uh, you learn more about him as you do gradually through season two in this evolution to pure darkness as Angelus, but you learn the story of what he did to Drusilla, which is pretty horrifying. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, here's this leading man at this point, he's still the boyfriend and he's still the good vampire. And he, and you're getting a sense of, you know, which plays, plays into what happens much later on in the competition between spike and an angel and who's really the more uh pure or less unpure uh, of, of the impure of the the two and the, the argument always being that you know spike uh, angel soul was handed to him and spike had to battle battle yeah. for it and and uh you know angel and you know so angel was pretty angel needs to check his privilege <laughs> <as a vampire. laughs> But but at this point, you know, we're still – he's still being presented as, like, the quiet uh, – he's the romantic lead in this yeah. show. Here we are finding out these really horrible things that, that he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, torturing – not just killing her and, and turning her, but torturing her first and then well, – We also
1: find out that Giles was yeah no great shakes yeah. and got somebody –
2: Well, i I was gonna say this is the this is the second episode all three of these episodes are pretty dark um this is the second episode in a row that features us getting um you know a a more detailed look at the dark hidden past of a character that we're meant to identify with and and love it's not quite as shocking when you learn this stuff about angel because he is a vampire i suppose but Mm -hmm. still like you said he's the romantic lead and uh
1: but it kind of interest. It raises the question maybe in an interesting way. Like, well, who who can we forgive? How how bad is the sin before we can't say that he's changed and now we we like him? You know, or, or... that's like the whole argument that they have on the
0: hilltop. Yeah, in the Christmas episode where he he's saying his weakness was as a man, and and she keeps saying, you know, we we all make mistakes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. Like <laughs> rampage through China, killing. Him. <laughs> <laughs> women but uh, But you know that is I think He has I think he has As
2: much problem with that as
0: anybody mm-hmm. Forgiving himself in, Oh, yeah. Absolutely
2: absolutely Yeah, yeah. Um, We can't get out of this episode without mentioning the first Appearance of Chanterelle um, Who goes on That character has multiple appearances across The two series um, As very, in, very under various Aliases but yeah. Uh, so Chanterelle gets her first appearance here. Yeah.
0: I mean, in that in that episode, I, I think this. I think she's in two angel episodes. She's, or, but, she's in. She's in a few. But the uh, the one where she winds up taking the money at the end. Uh huh. Yeah. Literally has blood on it. Right. Yeah. And she takes it because she says, you know, it doesn't matter where it comes from because she's putting it to good use. Uh-huh. That's a really great episode. I mean, that's a really interesting yeah.
1: ethical uh, conundrum that. You know, well, that also sums up the whole premise of Angel in those yes, years. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but it's, it's hard to good use, ostensibly. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, Yeah. so she figures – she she goes on to play a huge role. I mean, you know, she's an interesting character in season three. Is mm-hmm. three of yeah. Buffy? Yeah. Uh, but
2: uh, she's really interesting later on too, yeah. Um, one last thing I want to point out here um, – just because i want to point it out i don't i don't think it means anything but i would love to get a reaction like i want a reaction shot of you guys when i say this (laughs) the first time in the series that we get buffy saying i love you to angel is in the episode lie to me
1: oh interesting
2: (laughs) i'm sure that doesn't mean anything but i just had to point that out no no
0: it it does
2: it means
0: a lot I, i didn't catch it uh that's when she says she doesn't trust him right she loves him but she doesn't trust him. He, um
2: yeah I guess I guess she says that yeah he he pointedly asks her he says do you yeah yeah, yeah 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 do you love me and she's like yes I love you so yeah
0: I think that's
2: right before he tells her what he did to Drusilla right yeah Maybe, yeah yeah um okay so speaking of dark I guess if there if there's nothing else specific about um lie to me although we should I'll just mention that Ford uh is played by um is it Jason Bear? Is that his name? Yes. Yeah, who goes on yes. to I never really watched Roswell, but Roswell. Like, that was that was uh when I met my wife, that was like one of her favorite shows of all time.
1: It was kind of kind of on a parallel track to Buffy, I think.
2: Is it? I mean it, it yeah it it's, fandom and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 I never really watched it either. Um all right the so is really good on uh on Unreal, Unreal. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so the Dark Age. Um, what uh, what can we say about the Dark Age? Uh, all the darkness comes home to roost of these three episodes. Uh, yeah,
0: you know that's um. We've kind of talked a lot about uh, Giles, already, and this whole sort of backstory that we get, which, again, you know, is kind of like. No, it's difficult, I, di- I didn't see it when it first came out, I guess you did, but it, you know, I would imagine it was hugely surprising at the time that he was some was quite so different from how he presented himself. Yeah,
1: I think this was a, this is one where fans got re- was really excited and like really wanted to talk about it right. the next day.
0: I do also love, I think Giles and Jenny uh, in this episode are, are really funny, the way she, uh harasses him over his stuffiness and repression not that i know anything about
1: um, (laughs) they have really good chemistry
0: yeah they do yeah they
2: have have amazing chemistry i i on a previous podcast talked about the fact that the character of jenny was introduced just as a like she was meant to be just a one-off but um her the chemistry between anthony stewart had and robbie l'amore was powerful enough that they were like we got to bring this character back and i'm so happy that they did and i'm so heartbroken that heartbroken that uh, yeah, <laughs> that they did
0: <laughs> well again that's so that's so awesome though yeah of course that um he, here uh it, she she seems to have all the leverage in this in the relationship right now <laughs> but once they find out who she really is she's she's her She totally changes she's like she's suddenly almost like she's a character who you feel sorry for uh, instead of being this
1: person well it's funny because we talked about the golden circle and being on the outs and yeah and when we see her on the outs it's a very vivid sort of example of that feeling (laughs) I always felt you know
0: while we're talking about this I always felt that Buffy was like so (laughs) this shows my bias but I always felt like Buffy was so mean to Cordelia, <laughs> instead of it being the other way around. That she never gave her a break.
1: I mean, she never accepted the possibility that uh, that Cordelia. I might could... be game recognizing game. I think it might be a sign of respect that you don't give Cordelia a break.
2: Just... <laughs> I I will say that on, on this revisit, I've been surprised at how not like. Bloodthirsty, a bitch Cordelia is. So my memory of Cordelia had always been that she was just the mean girl that uh, you always wanted to see get captured by the monster of the week or whatever. And on this revisit, I'm like, I mean, obviously she's playing the role of the mean girl, but she's not as like just straight up contemptible as I remembered her being in the beginning.
1: Although when she tells
2: Willow that she sees she's found the softer side of seals, well, well that's current... episode one. <laughs> yeah, one. yeah,
1: uh, no. She, you know, she's just a beautiful thirty-five-year-old woman <laughs> she's doing her
2: best. <laughs> Ouch.
0: Um. She has. She has I, again. I put this in the book that David Greenwald once said that he was going to um, write a have a coffee table book called "The Wit and Wisdom of of, Cord, of um, Cordelia Chase." And I think it's. I can't. Which is the? It's this one. The Dark Age, where she's complaining about her park, her her traffic ticket. She says yeah. it was. It's a one-way
1: street,
2: and I was going one way. <laughs> that's right. That's
1: right. Um, it's going her way.
2: <laughs> so uh, that's true of of Cordelia all the time. Um, yes. A, a little more about Jenny. I've been I, I just because I cannot stop being fascinated by this. The way the character was introduced, um, like we find out later in this in the season that she is actually sort of directly tied. Her story is directly tied to Angel, but prior to that, there are so many... I will call them clues, even though I don't think at the time the writers necessarily knew what they were doing, but there are so many clues, so many ties between Jenny and Angel. Like... Every time she pops up on screen it's it follows some mention of Angel or Giles is trying to call Angel on the phone or whatever. There's so many things. And then I thought I just thought it was interesting given the history between the two that we discover eventually that Angel is the one that saves Jenny Calendar in this episode. Mhm. Um and we can't figure out how old Angel is, and her name is Callendar. <gasps> <Dun, dun, dun. laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that means something. Um. Anyways, oh, a great Jenny line A great Jenny and Xander line The first thing we're going to do is, Buffy <laughs> Xander's like, huh, did I fall asleep already? Right, <laughs> that, that, right. Is funny. that is a funny line A little bit creepy, but it's alright, it's funny Um, He's a red-blooded American male I guess
0: I, mean, I He's another guy who's had, uh, the actor Has had so many Questionable uh, yeah. Things in his life that sort of it's, Sometimes it's hard to To uh, to look view the actor discreetly from the from the character, but I will say that um, I was doing a Buffy podcast for a while, and with Scott Ryan, my colleague, and we went to WhedonCon last year, and we interviewed him, Nicholas Brennan, and he is he's hilarious. He's really funny, Great funny, and and was very nice and accessible. And
2: I, I recently had uh, Teresa Fortier on the show. Yeah. And um, who she's I, I was fascinated by the fact that she is absolutely not a Xander fan. She is patently not a Xander fan, but she clearly adores Nicholas Brendan. Like they work together all the time. So
0: she arranged the interview for me. Yeah. Oh,
2: there you go. There you go. Do you want, uh, just out of curiosity, do you want to name drop the podcast that you did? Is it still available?
0: Uh, it was called Big Bad Buffy interviews. It's still out there. We, we were interviewing people from the show. Okay. So we did, uh, you know, D- David Fury. We did about ten of them, and one of them we did was uh, was was we went to um, we did a roundtable at WheatonCon where we had a bunch of people from the show on it. So awesome.
2: Uh, yeah. And you said that's still out there. I'll. Uh... It, it is.
0: I mean, then those guys came out with you. You know about that oral history that Mark Alman and Ed Gross came out with, and then we thought. Yeah. It's like that Woody Allen joke about how like somebody went went to him and said they wrote a book called Great Expectations and he read it and he said it was a great book, but Charles Dickens already wrote it, so there's really no <laughs> point. So that's kind of there's no point to the oral history anymore.
2: Yeah, well, uh, well, I'll, I'll uh, if I can find a link to that, I'll thank I'll, you. I'll put a link in the show notes. So. Um all right uh so what else, what else do we get here lots of lots of darkness for Rupert Giles um, let's see, I'm scanning over my notes um, oh yeah, so in uh episode 103, in the in which from the first season, you know there's the and I called it out when I was discussing that episode, Giles claimed outright that he had no experience with spell casting or any of that stuff uh-huh. and, and obviously um that is not true um so you wonder how much of how
1: much of giles initial presentation as an act because by season four or five that stammer and that that embarrassed sort of uh you know i i can't even i can't even think of what to say i'm just so you know scandalized and
2: it's kind of all gone <laughs> yeah um, he doesn't clutch his pearls quite as often in later exactly. seasons as he does, yeah. Yeah, and he sort of, like, starts wearing these, like,
1: you know, crew neck, <laughs> loose sweaters instead of
2: these jackets and stuff.
1: Um, but, yeah, so I wonder if, if we could just infer that he, he was lying or, you know, he's, he's really presenting a false front at that stage. Like, he's completely constructed this kind of helpless, fuddy-duddy librarian persona to get as far away from Ripper as possible.
2: Okay, that's interesting Do you think that that is um, You say he's lying Or that it's possible that he's lying Do you think he's lying To himself? Like, I mean, so this persona That he's created, at least in part Do you think it's For his own benefit To remove himself emotionally From where he used to be? Or is he
1: is yeah. Putting on a
2: front for other people so they don't suspect he used to be like that.
1: I think it's it's probably a mixture of both. I think he's deeply ashamed of his past and what happened to, what was his name Philip? Was that the one? Who yeah. No, no, Philip was the one who actually comes. Right, right, right. Uh, I forget the guy's name. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> I think he's he's very ashamed of his his past, and so he does this like, I don't know how consciously, but this one eighty in terms of personality and presentation. And,
2: um, that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. Um it's not not just the darkness uh that he's got in him, but I think one of the one of the more interesting reveals is that um you know, Bookish uh he, even his diapers were tweed. Uh Giles dropped out of school. Like had a promising educational future at Oxford and uh, he dropped out of school because he was bored with uh, the study curriculum and uh-huh. uh, and you know fled to London to get away from his destiny as a watcher so even just like beyond the, the fascinating darkness of he used to they used to summon demons just to get high <laughs> uh-huh. I think it's interesting that Giles of all people dropped out of college
1: right well, see, it kind of makes sense to me where he was this, you know, brilliant young, uh, kind of wild guy with a, you know, thirst for the dark side and danger, and uh, you know he's he reckless and this terrible thing happens, and so his reaction is to go a hundred percent in the direction his his family wanted him to go in in the first place,
2: mm-hmm. to
1: be this professorial, rule bound, you know, watcher who. Seemingly has no physical body, but a tweed suit and a brain floating above it. You know, like it it makes sense to me psychologically that he would so completely embrace that image of what he was supposed to have been in the first place.
2: And that that makes. uh, You know, that adds layers to excuse me. Yeah, that adds layers to the way that we see him behave with Buffy, the way that he like wants her to to knuckle down and study the way he wants her to focus uh, and yet he's he he presents this front of being the by the book watcher <clears throat> but and she kind of helps him by
1: you know example kind of maybe be more true to his authentic self and be more in touch with emotions and and be more in the moment right, right. So, but i mean I, also that kind of plays into later when he confronts willow about her irresponsible magic use why he's so yeah yeah so you know <clears throat> he's he's not kidding he's deeply angry yeah i think one of the clues to giles
0: also is that um his in terms of his flexibility he's far less rigid than he appears to be because he even says to faith was not no faith but kendra kendra yeah she, she says that she was reading the watcher handbook from the time she was like a little kid. And Buffy says, I didn't even know there was a book. Why didn't you give me the book? And he, he says to her, you wouldn't have read it anyway. Right. So yeah. Yeah. he was flexible. He was, you know, human and flexible uh, from the, he, there was always that side to him, which I think, I think Buffy encourages it and brings it out. Oh, absolutely. I think that the, that the um, symbiosis of that relationship is, a huge part of what Buffy is about
2: mm-hmm. uh, yeah yeah good stuff good stuff um let's see uh i th- i thought it was interesting that this is um this is kind of a taste of things to come for the series because uh, up to this point i feel like Uh, The sort of the monster of the week The demon du jour or whatever Tended to be like All about the metaphor Uh, They they tended to be like the supernatural Rubber or paper mache Embodiment of whatever sort of growing pain Or life lesson that our characters were meant to learn And uh, in this episode Igon is Almost Sort of incidental like there's not a lot You know, There's not a lot of information about the character Of Igon and he really is just there to serve the character development of Giles. Um, yeah. And I feel like more of that, like the show never gives up its whole monsters is a metaphor thing, but I feel like it becomes from this point on the show gets a little deeper into character than maybe it had previously.
1: Well, I think that's another kind of payoff thing where, you know, a lot of people when they're telling someone uh advising them to check out buffy a lot of people say you know season one's a little rough you know get through season one and season two it really starts picking up but i think the season one thing is necessary just to establish uh the characters as they are are first presented to us over that season where we just become so accustomed to and fond of you know uh giles the fuddy-duddy Uncle Professor character, Buffy the Valley Girl, Willa the Wallflower, that by the time we get to episode two, after we've seen them go through these paces and really gotten to, to love who they are, now it's possible to start peeling that stuff back and, and revealing that there are whole other aspects of them that we just haven't seen yet.
0: I think that's true. I mean, I do think that there. I mean, a lot of people like that episode, the the pack, mm-hmm. and um the the one with the talent show, uh, but a lot of people think those are really bad episodes. So, I think that you're absolutely right that you need that character uh, development. But I think that there are some episodes, the 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 the, the, the teacher who is the praying mantis, <laughs> that,
2: that 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 one's hard to defend. I. I... <laughs> Upon this rewatch, I have discovered that there are things that I love about most of the episodes. Like the Pack was m- a much better episode than I feel like its reputation. Uh, same thing for uh, the Puppet Show, which is the talent show one you were talking about. Uh, but man, Teacher's Pet, <laughs> the one, well,
0: the one that has the worst reputation is that beer. Beer bad. Yeah, let's talk to far, Tracy Forbes about yeah. that. Uh, yeah, no, it's de- it's definitely later. I don't know what season it is, but. We talked to the the author of that and uh, she actually doesn't hate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget Inca Mummy Girl. Yeah. Yeah. Was that two or one? That's uh-huh. season one, I think. Yeah. So I mean I think that's what people are complaining about <laughs> with respect. It's kinda of like dollhouse, you know. I think their complaints yeah. about season one are justified.
2: Mhm. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, like like you guys were just talking about, you can't like this stuff with Giles wouldn't there wouldn't be a payoff It wouldn't mean anything if the character had started here. Not
0: for that right. demon dummy in season one that <laughs> that or that praying mantis teacher that payoff. Know, <laughs> Giles never. Well,
2: I will. I will just reiterate. I, I talked about it on the podcast for that episode, but I will reiterate. I would love to see. I I wish that Sid the demon hunting dummy had gotten a spinoff. I really did.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> is a weird show in that the more they reveal about the side stuff,
2: as yeah. much as love. Buffy and the Scoobies,
1: I want a crazy true blood HBO series about, you know, Spike, Drusilla and Angel. Absolutely. And I want a series about young Giles and young Ethan, you know, casting spells and going to punk rock shows and, you know, getting in trouble in in London in the the 70s. Like every side thing seems like such a rich opportunity for an amazing uh,
2: story to follow.
0: They should have done an Angel
1: sidebar a uh, spinoff.
0: Yeah, uh, that would have been
1: good.
2: Oh, that would have been great.
1: A lot yeah. left to say about him.
2: <laughs> All right. Um, well, was there is there anything else that you guys wanted to hit on that that we've skipped over? Anything else we have to say?
0: Well, on Dark Age, I thought it was interesting that he asked her for forgiveness. Essentially, I, I don't know if he comes right out and says it, but he he's basically uh, I think he says I'm sorry or something for mm-hmm. what he's done and. That reminded me of the scene later on where she, after she has sex with Angel, that she basically is apologizing to him, and he's telling her, you know, there's no need to apologize. And 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 he says, "You
1: have my support and my respect." Yeah, yeah. And that's like the key moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then she goes, goes talks to her mom, or doesn't talk to her mom. Mm -hmm. Does like that cupcake or something. Uh, yeah, so that I thought was kind of, was kind of interesting. That it sort of evoked that for me.
2: Man, Giles is a great character, and my favorite. And Joyce at this point in the series is not. <laughs> 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 we didn't get Joyce in any of these episodes, which is fine by me. I, I yeah,
0: she's she, such a nice woman, though. She she's
2: she's a, she becomes her. a wonderful character, and and she's got a hard well, road. She to knows hope. what's going on. It's yeah, kind man. of it's kind of irritating that trope of like, like
1: yeah. bewitched or Mr. Ed, and like, well, this one this main character can never know the truth of the situation we're all in. That just drives me crazy. But. Yeah, that's yeah. a bad episode too, right? The
0: one with the uh, where Buffy comes home and they have the party for her with right. Me. That's a really bad episode. That's a choice episode. <laughs> man, I like it in Halloween where Xander says, you know, because like I I dissected Restless again,
2: mm-hmm.
0: the book and you know, all these references to Don, and I'm convinced, like, I'm so convinced there's a scene in Restless, I'm probably wrong, but I'm convinced of it anyway, there's a scene in Restless where there's a young girl at the ice cream truck, I think it's Xander's Dream?
1: Yeah.
0: Is the one with the um, sandbox, yeah. I swear, I swore that that was um, Michelle Trachtenberg, Trachtenberg. and then I read that she was actually on set when they were uh, filming that, so, but anyway, Xander has a line in Halloween saying, I'm taking a lot on faith here, mm-hmm. so I was actually <laughs> <directly> thinking, <laughs> were they were they foreshadowing faith in season two? Probably. Not
1: when it's fun. So. And someone says, "Hey, do you want to see a trick, Mister?"
2: Oh, luck. <laughs> uh,
1: that's this is a, just the fun of it, you know. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. All right, well, guys, this was uh, this was great fun. Thank you so much for both of you uh, making time to join me.
0: Sure, well, it was fun for us too. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for having
2: for us. us. Um, I can't remember if I've got you signed up for future episodes. Uh, I should learn by now. I mean, this is the eighth episode of this podcast. You'd think I'd have the schedule up in front of me when I record, but I don't remember if you've signed up for previous ep- for no, future episodes. You did? Okay. Oh, you didn't. Well, I don't think so. Um, it, you're welcome back anytime, so if, the, if there's anything in the future that you want to discuss, just let me know. We'll see uh, what we can do, arrange schedules, make that work, but... Um, in the meantime, I always give my guests the opportunity, if they choose to take it, to uh, pimp their stuff or to to let uh, our listeners know how they can stalk you online. So,
0: Well, um, certainly we're interested in plugging our book, Buffy the Vampire Slayer FAQ. Uh, that's available um, in bookstores and also online.
1: And it might sound like it's a trivia compendium or yeah. something, but it's really not. It's... Um, it's much more like the conversation we just had. It's,
0: yeah, mean, we did a lot of interviews,
1: a lot of analysis and commentary, yeah. and
2: yeah, yeah, terrible title, yeah, it's not terrible. I, I, uh, in the show notes, I, I try to link as often as possible to uh, the books that my guests have written or books that we reference in the episode. So I'll, I'll provide a, a link to, uh, I believe I've got an Amazon link for that. Yep. So
0: okay well
2: thank you um yeah uh thanks again for joining me guys and uh, again welcome back anytime uh and everybody at home thank you so much for listening you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com or you can subscribe to the show on itunes Uh, while you're there please rate us or write us a view or write us a review there's more than one uh, buffy podcast out there in the world so anything that you any kind words you could spare for me would really help this one stand out uh, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed please join the conversation you can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com follow us on twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on facebook uh, facebook.com conswithdead and there is the facebook group because I can't say the word conversations nearly enough. Uh, The Facebook group is called Conversations with Conversations with Dead People. (laughs) So uh, my hope is that that uh, Facebook group is where we can get a larger group of people to join in on the conversations that we start on these podcasts. So check us out there. Uh, next week's conversation will be with uh, Melanie Scala, a longtime fan of genre fiction in general and Buffy the Vampire Slayer in particular. Uh, and she tells me that she went to library school, which I suppose makes her a watcher in training. So I can't wait to see what uh, perspective that's going to give her on the episodes we'll be discussing next time, which are 209 What's My Line Part 1 and 210 What's My Line Part 2. So until then, Ger Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Keep on dancing to the rock and roll On Saturday night, Saturday night Dancing to the rhythm in our heart and soul On Saturday night, Saturday night